This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 1.39, Encore, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, and now, podcaster who has successfully covered the first series of Mobile Suit Gundam. Looking forward to season two. And I'm Nina, new Gundam fan, and I kind of can't believe we did it. Hooray! Go us! Achievements! There's achievements here! We have completed 4.75% of all currently extant Gundam. That's not bad. No, it's not. Less than a year. If we continue at this rate, well, let's not think about that. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 104 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Slurm King, Bradley A., Leo L., and Gabriel H., if you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord and bonus content, you can do so at gundampodcast.com slash Patreon. Last week, we talked about the second movie, Soldiers of Sorrow, and new types. New types, 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 atarashi types. Translator's note, atarashi means new. Thank you. <laughs> Highly necessary. <laughs> right? This week, we are covering Encounters in Space, the third and final first Gundam compilation movie. And we are joined once again by our friend Angela, who will help us unpack the movie and decide whether it holds up. But first, Nina and I are going to talk through the movie and the changes that were made between the original episodes and their compiled form. Movie 3, Encounters in Space, covers episodes 31 to 43, which is a span of about 13 episodes. They do some cutting and some rearranging, but I think considerably less so than the second movie. We start with episodes 31 and 32. Uh, They sort of combine these. These are decoy in space and breakthrough. Mm -hmm. And rather than show them in their entirety, they mash them together And all told, the events of these two episodes are probably not even given like 20 minutes. I'd say, I'd guess probably five minutes for these two episodes. I did say not even 20. (laughs) The two battles of these two episodes, one with Shars Zanzibar and one with Ensign Dren, now Lieutenant Dren's Camel Squadron, are cut down into just the one Camel Squadron fight, which goes by very quickly. We lose two mobile armor fights here, the Big Row and the Zacrello. Very tragic. We also lose Sela's brief but significant moment of hesitation where she spends almost an entire battle unable to fight because she's afraid that one of the enemy mobile suits might contain her brother. That bit of self-doubt is removed entirely. The white base is not damaged significantly in these fights and goes to side six to buy time rather than because they are in need of repairs. A small change and one that I don't think makes too much of a difference in the grand scheme of things. No. 
Farewell Inside Six is the first episode that we really get in its entirety, which is understandable. A lot of very important things happen in Farewell Inside Six. It makes sense that they would keep the whole thing. We also get almost all of episode 34, Fateful Encounter. The only significant cuts from the Side 6 episodes that I noticed were the removal of the battle in the first episode, as well as Bergamino and that whole subplot. Right, the repair station outside of Side 6, that whole thing. Amaro still sees his dad in a bookshop across the street, chases (laughs) after him, goes to his apartment, is horrified. Like I said, (laughs) the episode is there almost in its entirety. This is the first time in the movie that we see what is going to be a trend throughout all of these episodes. Some of the important scenes, really the crucial scenes of these episodes, have been completely redone. They've been rescripted, reanimated, and new voice work has been recorded in order to change the tone and make things a little bit more explicit. We'll talk specifically about those in a little bit when we address that trend as a whole, but this is the first time it happens. Our first big change to the order of events comes next. We get Duel in Texas and Shar and Sela before episodes 35 and 36. Uh, Duel and Shar and Sela are episodes 37 and 38. During the show, they end up in Texas as part of a mopping up operation to clear out Xeon survivors of the Battle of Solomon. It's not entirely clear why they're there in the movie, perhaps just buying more time or investigating a signal or something. They happen upon it on their way to the fight. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also lose most of Duel in Texas. McVeigh is not even there. The Gyan has been removed entirely. Scenes from that episode are included in the later fight with Char, but for the most part, Duel in Texas is gone, and we are left with Char and Sela. Char and Sela makes two important changes. One, Dr. Flanagan has gotten a complete makeover. (laughs) And two, Shar has a horse. Yes, major structural changes <laughs> to the narrative. Shar has a horse. Hey, this is the first time that the movies have introduced a new character. Not true. There's that woman who's always lurking behind Girin. True, but she hasn't shown up yet. I think the horse is the first one to appear in the movies. They give Girin a beautiful, silent assistant. <laughs> And because this is Gundam, there's a whole backstory for her, which is developed in the supplementary materials. I believe she is alleged to be Giren's mistress. And there are like fan theories about characters later on in Gundam that so-and-so might be Giren's illegitimate child. Uh Uh-huh. Solomon plays out pretty much straight as it does in the show, but it is sped up a little bit. I would say there are some significant cuts, but it retains the feel of those episodes in the show. Yeah. They just spend a little less time on things. Episode 39, this is the new type, Shalia Bull, cut entirely. Gone. No Shalia Bull. Yep. I can't really blame them since he gets introduced and killed off in a single episode. Yeah, most of what Shalia Bull does in the show is to expound a little bit more on the concept of new types and to acquaint the audience with the abilities of new types to familiarize them with a little bit more of the Xeon backstabbing politics. 
But those are all things that the movie handles in other places or in different ways. And after Soldiers of Sorrow, no one in the audience needs to be further acquainted with new types. <laughs> At one point, inspired by one of our Instagram followers, Toby the Mecha Swede, I went back and counted how many times new type gets said in the original series. And it gets said 12 times in the episode of the new type Shalia Bowl which is the most times it's said in any episode, period. You told me it had only been said like 50 times total. 56 times total in the first series. So about 20% of that is Shalia Bull. Yep, 20% of that is Shalia Bull. 20% of that is in Escape, where it's said 11 times. Wow. Yep. We also skip substantial portions of Lala's Dilemma. Almost the entirety of it. I think there might be one or two scenes that get kept, but her whole sortie with the doms, their little crisis of, well, what am I doing here if this new type is so good? Uh, all of that gets cut. Xeon ace pilot butt sham is, is gone. No more butt sham. And then the last three episodes, Cosmic Glow, Abawaku, and Escape are there almost in their entirety. From Cosmic Glow, the early section where the white base is at Solomon and Moss Khan is upgrading the Gundam's joints with magnets, those are gone. We go straight into the fight with Lala and Shar. So that's it for the big structural changes across this part of the story. Let's talk a little bit about some of the conversations, animation, smaller things that got changed that we noticed and thought were interesting. <laughs> Two really important changes. Hayato gets a gun cannon instead of the gun tank, and he manages to get his first kill significantly earlier in the movie. Hayato gets a serious upgrade. I realized as we were watching this why I missed the G-Fighter. The core booster does not have a droop snoot. <laughs> I like the droop snoot. The core booster is kind of more upturned with its snoot rather than downturned. Snooty snoot. <laughs> when we were watching these episodes and talking about them in the podcast, we kept coming back to these scenes where it wasn't really clear what people were talking about. <laughs> they were being sort of oblique and mysterious. This often happened when they were talking about Xeon politics or new type philosophy. And it also came up a lot with Shar's motivations. Now, the person who is at the center of Xeon politics, new type philosophy, and Shar's motivations is, of course, Shar. And there were a lot of scenes in the movie with Shar that were significantly changed in order to, I think, make the scenes a little bit more explicit, clearer, easier to understand. We get the first of these on side six during what I refer to as the Char's roadside assistance scene, <laughs> where Amuro gets his buggy stuck in a poorly maintained side six road, and Char and Lala are driving by, and they help him out by towing his car out of the rut. Their car is completely different yep. in the movie than it is in the show. It's a much nicer car. It looks less <laughs> like a buggy and more like it has an automobile. And not super important, but a very cool little detail. They have Char's knees get muddy after he kneels to tie on the like tow rope. And then they have Amaro's get muddy when he unties the other end of it afterwards. And there are little things like that, like when Lala first drives by, she splashes mud at Amaro and he's able to dodge it. And the movie is just a little bit more explicit that that is actually what happened there. 
The movie also lets us know that, in fact, Amuro knows exactly who Shar is. As opposed to having a vague sense of like, why do I know this guy? <laughs> why does this guy seem so familiar? I think that's in line with steps they've taken throughout all the movies to make the new type abilities more explicit. Mm -hmm. Like he knows because he's a new type and they've had these interactions during fights. Also on side six, we get a scene of Shar and Lala. This is while they're watching the battle between the white base and Kanskan's attack force. This is another scene from the show, but this time Shar's mask is off. We'll talk about this more in our conversation with Angela, but we see a lot more of Char without the mask in the films. We think there are a lot of reasons for this, none of which have to do with the narrative. <laughs> <laughs> Except it does make him seem less guarded in this conversation with Lala. They do a lot with his relationship with Lala throughout this film that feels slightly different. That scene feels more intimate because he's not wearing the mask. Lala also in that scene felt like she was engaging with him on a more flirty level and a mm -hmm. less like, yes, sir, commanding officer, sir, mm -hmm. kind of level. Yeah, their relationship feels a little bit less predatory in the movie, a little closer to equal. Part of that might be that we just see less of them together. And part of that is that Shar feels a little bit more upfront about his motivations. They have a whole conversation where Shar tells Lala point blank, my interest in you is entirely because of your abilities. Which she shrugs off as like, oh, well, that's because you're a man. Like, obviously, that's what, <laughs> that's what men are into. The ability to use your brain to kill horrifying numbers of enemies. Mm, I'm, I'm getting all hot and bothered just hearing you talk about it. Uh, of course, then she says a line that I find completely inexplicable about that's why she has to maintain her integrity as a woman. Yeah, I that, huh, I don't I, know what that means. Yeah, I, I don't either. I don't know what that's about. I imagine if I did understand, it would make me angry. <laughs> I have a hunch. <laughs> <laughs> and tiny moment, but very interesting. When Lala dies... Char doesn't get angry and pound the control panel of his mobile suit. We see a like a single tear drop down from behind his mask. At first, he has the mask on, so he seems to be completely unresponsive. Like he's not having any emotional reaction to Lala's death at all. And then you see a couple of tears trickle down from underneath the mask. It is still the most emotional that we see him throughout the entire narrative. But it's a very, very different kind of emotional reaction. I felt like it swung the other way to a certain degree in Char's conversation with Kaecilia. Mm -hmm. Because even though he kept the mask on in the show, we get a sense of nervousness from him. And we don't know whether he's putting that on or it's real, but it's there. Mm -hmm. He's acting nervous. In the movie version of that conversation, he doesn't seem at all surprised that she knows who he is. There's no sense of shock from mm -hmm. that. In the movie, it doesn't feel like this is the first conversation they've had about this. In the movie, it really feels like this is their weekly check-in on whether or not Char still wants to kill all the zombies. And you're talking about the emotional vibe, because it's clear from the words that they say mm -hmm. that she's like, haha, I used to play with you as a kid. Of course I know who you are, you big dumb idiot. <laughs> I mean, not that many four-year-olds were wearing masks. <laughs> This Shar and Kaecilia scene is really the perfect example when we talk about the movie making things more explicit. Because in the show, the way this scene plays out is Kaecilia challenges Shar about his true identity as Kasval Rem Dekun. And then she says something like, but I can tell that you have already abandoned your goal of assassinating all the zombies. 
And Char goes, hmm, yes. And then they talk about how it's because of Lala convincing him that new types are real and the future. And they go, hmm, yes. And then Kaecilia says something to the effect of, well, Giran has gone to about a coup. We'll finish this conversation later. And then Char goes, hmm, yes, this adequately resolves this conversation that we're having. Doesn't she explicitly tell him, like, if you could take care of my Giran problem, that'd be great. <laughs> It's much more subtle in the show. In the movie, she pretty much says like, oh, and while you're at it, just like kill my brother, please. Yeah. In the show, when we talked about it on the podcast, we spent a lot of time analyzing that last line and trying to figure out what exactly Kaecilia meant by it. We had a couple of different theories, and one of them was that Kaecilia was suggesting that Char ought to kill Giran for her. And yeah, in the movie, she's a lot more explicit about that. The other thing she does is rather than just saying, ah, yes, I can see that you have already abandoned your plan to kill all the zombies. Instead, she says, so why did you abandon your plan to kill all the zombies? Which is great because it gives Shar an opportunity to explain to her and the audience that after he killed Garma, he felt nothing. He felt hollow and empty and none of the satisfaction that he was expecting to feel. Now, whether he's telling the truth here or not, eh, it's a big question mark. We know that Char lies constantly to everybody, and if ever there was someone he was going to lie to, it would be Kaecilia in this scene. But it could also be true. We have to spare some time for Char and Sela, because these conversations also have very significant changes. The first one, of course, being their encounter on Texas. I didn't write down exact lines here, but the conversation lays out quite explicitly that Sayla believes Shar is perverting what their father was trying to accomplish, that she sees new types as a natural evolution from what they call old types in this conversation, <laughs> which I don't think gets used in the show, except for the time when Amro is like, I think I'm an old type <laughs> because he's sentimental. But anyway, she sees this as more of a natural evolution Char feels that quote-unquote old types, many of them will never accept that new types have superseded them, and so it's actually going to be more of a violent replacement. <laughs> He's like, and that's why old types have to be defeated. Oh, well, he says, that's why old types will be destroyed. I wrote that part down. Mm -hmm. He also specifically laments that the current system forces new types to fight each other and kill each other. The other thing that changes in this first conversation between Shar and Sela is that whereas in the show, he says, oh, my originally my plan was to kill all the zombies, but my plan is bigger than that now. In the movie, he's like, oh, no, my plan is still to kill all the zombies, but also. <laughs> <laughs> and Sela chases after him when he leaves rather than just sort of waiting and calling out. This connects to something that was in the show, although it was only ever covered in the narration, talking about how Sela, it felt like, had spent her entire life chasing after her older brother and calling out, Nisan. And so now we get that happening physically on screen. And it is perhaps significant because there's going to be another parting between the two of them at the end of the movie when Shar and Sela meet once again. And Shar once again leaves her behind, but this time Sela does not attempt to pursue him. He also hugs her, which is a lot of physical affection for this movie. We don't see a lot of no. that. Well, and Sela is... Does anyone else hug in this whole movie? Mirai and Slager. Sela mm. seems completely taken off guard by Shar's hug. She was not expecting that hug. So you'd think with all of these changes to how Shar is presenting his ideology to people that the conversation he has with Amuro while they're fighting would be very different, but it's not. 
<laughs> the scenery is different. Uh, what was previously like a fancy parlor now appears to be some sort of war museum. There's all these suits of armor and weapons everywhere, uh, which I guess makes sense. Shrug. <laughs> but otherwise, their conversation is largely unchanged. Overall, Amaro's role in the movie and his character, his development, doesn't change very much from the show. There are some people who move in Amaro's orbit who are affected by the movie's changes. In particular, his dad, who doesn't have many scenes either in the show or in the movie, but they are pretty crucial emotionally for us to understand Amaro as a character. And so small changes to them can have big impacts on how we view Tem and that relationship. And of course, Amaro, who's our main character. In the side six section, like I said, most of it plays out, except that Tem has been made somehow a little bit less awful. I would say he's more pathetic. Yeah. They really draw out some of the scenes that he's in. And it feels more sad even mm-hmm. than in the show. And it's pretty sad in the show. Yeah, it does make him into a figure less to be despised and more to be pitied. I would say especially the scene of him watching the fight outside side six on television. Because it's much less like, yeah, I've still got it. I created the Gundam and the Gundam is great. And it's all because I'm the best scientist ever. And much more like, yeah, the Federation's going to win. Take that, Zeon. Uh, and he has this extended scene of like running around cheering. He runs outside and to the point that he falls down the stairs, which we just get this idea of him being not quite okay mm-hmm. in the head, right? Mm-hmm. This weird mania that causes him to not really be aware of mm-hmm. what's going on around him. It makes him seem less uncaring and more incapable. Yeah. The scenes between Amuro and Lala also felt more romantic to me, although it was difficult for me to explain just why. (laughs) I can't entirely articulate it. Probably some combination of dialogue and voice acting and animation (laughs) all together. And in that initial conversation where they're sort of addressing what each of them fights for, it feels much more even in the movie, I thought, that like incredulity that each of them has for the other side that each of them sort of explicitly states this is why i fight and the other goes really that's it (laughs) (laughs) part of that might be that lala in the movies feels a little bit more with it and rational yeah and able to understand what amuro is saying and think critically about her beliefs whereas lala in the show is until the very end totally wrapped up in her almost childlike devotion to shar yeah i was gonna say that in in the show lala feels well the childlike is a good word if we want a less patronizing word perhaps otherworldly hmm <laughs> Like, she's not here. She's somewhere else. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so every time she communicates with anyone, there is this weird feeling of distance. It's like there's a language barrier. Yeah. And she seems much more engaged and present in the films. That comes through visually, too. In the show, she's always wearing that loose, flowing dress. Mm Mm-hmm. And we talked about how Shar interacts with that, how other people in Xeon interact with that, how they keep telling her to get into uniform, and Shar keeps saying, oh, yeah, yeah, eventually, whatever the supply core excuses. But it gives her that otherworldly, ethereal, mystical appearance. Of not being of 
Xeon. Or not, even of the world. Right. She's not part of all of this. No one else dresses like that. In the movie, she wears a uniform. Mm -hmm. She wears a standard issue Xeon uniform. Although it is tan, which I don't think we see <laughs> at any other point from any other Xeon person. Special new type core uniform colors, I guess. There is considerable new animation when she dies as well. Different music. Sort of unclear why they changed the animation. I thought the original animation for that was quite good. And they kept some of the animation. They kept the moment when she dies and her... Uh, her suit's faceplate shatters. And you can tell they kept it because it's a lot fuzzier than the rest of the animation in the movie, which is a little odd because that segment was already fuzzier than all of the animation in the show. <laughs> so <laughs> who knows? Who knows what the decision-making process behind that was? I can't speak to what they were trying to get across by including a glowy star in the scene where the waves flood <laughs> or, you know, they, they changed some of the visuals. They cut the one that looked like an egg being fertilized. Like, I don't know why they did these things, but clearly they felt they needed to make some changes to that scene. We get a couple of interesting new scenes with the zombies, the first of which is a sort of conference between the remaining siblings to talk over some strategic questions. Narratively in the story, this serves the purpose of telling us what's going to come next and why it's coming next. Why is the Federation attacking where it's attacking? Why are they attacking Solomon? What is Solomon? Those sorts of questions are handled quite elegantly by this conversation. What was most interesting to me is that immediately following the scene, we see Degwin meeting with a member of the government. Darsha Bakarov, the Prime Minister of Xeon, which I think I mentioned in a previous podcast episode. Essentially, it makes very explicit that Degwin is working behind the scenes, behind Girin's back, to try and foil some of Girin's plans. He does not agree with what his eldest is up to and wants to end the war as quickly as possible. We also get a change in the scene between Degwin and Girin. Much of that scene is the same. They still talk about Hitler. But we find out that the Federation had recognized Zeon as autonomous from the Earth government. Even before the war. So one of my major questions <laughs> through the show was, if all Zeon wanted was independence, and you've had this horrifically violent, deadly conflict, like, why wouldn't you just give them independence? So what? It's one side. Of all the humans on Earth and in space, this tiny fraction want to be independent. Like, I don't understand why you wouldn't just do that, given how horrible the conflict has been. Now that's fleshed out somewhat. They did do it. <laughs> that was not really the end goal. Mm -hmm. At least not for Girin. And then Girin tells us a little bit more about his end goal and confirms that not only has the war killed half of the human population, but Girin doesn't think that's enough. Girin thinks that once they win the war, then, only then, will it be time to begin the ethnic cleansing. He specifically says that the Earth's sphere must be cleansed. He references an overpopulation problem. He talks about like a corrupt and bloated bureaucracy and a you know greedy populace. Who just want more and more things like to be alive. It reminded me of conversations that people after the Romans had about like the decadence of the late Roman Empire. Uh, and these are all his arguments for why democracy is bad. By the way, <laughs> this is his this is how he explains why democracy is a bad idea. Right. And this is like page one, paragraph one, sentence one of the fascist playbook. 
we get another bit of character development for Degwin, although it doesn't come in one of his scenes. Back in that Shar and Cassilia scene, when Shar says, after I killed Garma, I felt nothing, no satisfaction, just hollow, Cassilia says, just like my father. And we don't know if that's when Degwin assassinated Zeon Dekun. We don't know if that's when Degwin formed the Principality of Zeon and became sovereign. We don't know what it was that made Degwin feel that way. But we get a sense for why it is that Degwin changed. That mm-hmm. he used to be somebody more like a Giran before becoming the person that he is today. It also gives you a sense for why Garma was so different from his siblings. And maybe if Garma had had a chance to grow up, he would have turned out just like the others. But Garma is much younger than the others. Garma only ever knew Degwin the Reformed. Mm. Giran only ever knew Degwin the Prior. <laughs> and perhaps Kaecilia and Dozel got some mix of the two. I feel like Mobile Suit Gundam might have a lot to say about the ways that a person's parents shape them. <laughs> For all the changes that were made to improve some of these very emotionally fraught scenes and make it a little bit clearer what's going on, one scene that really, really would have benefited from that was instead ignored and left in entirely intact from the show, and that's Mirai and Slager. And it's a little weird that this didn't get changed at all, because a lot of the build-up to it did get changed. I have a note from early on in the movie that I felt, until we get to those side six episodes, Slugger seems more goofy and less obnoxious. They cut most of his, like, harassing flirting. I think they cut basically all of his, like, weird touching mm-hmm. on the on the women in the crew. Mm-hmm. So they try to make him seem like less of a bad guy. Mm-hmm. I don't think he invites Sela to go take a shower with him. No, he doesn't. So they cut a lot of that. Then the scene where he punches Cameron is basically the same. The scene where he hits Mirai is basically the same. Although the fight between Mirai and Cameron is written a little bit differently. There aren't any important changes, I don't think, but it's a little bit more clear what each of them is talking about. Yeah. They're a little more direct. They also add a scene, perhaps because of the earlier cuts that made it less clear that there was something romantic between Mirai and Bright. Mm -hmm. They added some scenes. uh, Mirai is like fixing his shirts, (laughs) his t-shirts, which, by the way, have the Sunrise Studio logo on them. And they're not being very direct with each other, but it's clear there's something there. Mm -hmm. Bright also has a flashback to their conversation about her having a fiance before they go to side six. Mm -hmm. And it's clear from this flashback, it's like pink colored. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They're clearly trying to imbue that with some of the jealousy that wasn't really there in those earlier films. And then when Slager's ship comes back and Mirai goes to check on him, it's a lot more explicit that Bright knows Mirai has a crush on Slager. Doesn't he just say, like, I know you have feelings for him? Yeah. Go on. I know you dig him for some reason. I'll be here waiting for you when you come to your senses. Ugh. And then she goes down to the burger vending machine and things play out exactly as they did in the show. To audible groans. They just really don't provide any basis for that relationship. We never see Mirai and Slager spend pleasant time together. Mm-hmm. Ever. Mm-hmm. Or have a conversation. Mm-hmm. It also just felt like something they could have cut. I suppose they felt like if they did, then we wouldn't care when Slager died. 
I don't know. Yeah. Also, Bright cries when Slager dies. It's not just Mirai crying. And that felt weird. Yeah. That was an odd choice. We get another great political scene, which I feel must have been included because, as we mentioned in previous films, a lot of the scenes that emphasize the conflict between the white base crew and the Federation brass have been removed. There's no threats of court-martial and death. There's no, like, there's no, you're going to go to prison if you leave the army. So much of that coercive or abusive behavior gets cut out. And it did feel a bit like they included this next scene because they were like, oh, wait, now everybody thinks the Federation are the good guys, <laughs> but they're not. Whoops. Okay, let's uh, let's talk about that. Yeah, this is the scene where Kai basically just tells us what the message of the movie is supposed to be. Because they're all sitting around on the White Base Bridge and Kai's like, listen, it's not that I like Zeon. It's not that I want them to win. It's not that I'm afraid of fighting. I'm still going to do it. But I don't want to go out and throw my life away. I don't want to fall on my sword for the sake of a bunch of incompetent Federation officers. Well, yeah, he says, I want to go home to my folks, which is our first indication that he thinks his folks are alive. Yeah. Which, go Kai, I guess. <laughs> Lucky Kai. <laughs> Uh, and Bright teases him because everybody always teases Kai for being a coward, inc including Kai himself, and says, you just want to survive. And he's like, I don't want to waste my life. Mm -hmm. It's different. Because they're in the process of analyzing the Elmeth and how it is light years ahead of anything the Federation has. And it's like, seriously, these guys are a total clown show. <laughs> yeah. And Mirai agrees with him. And this is Mirai, who, let's remember, knows a lot about internal Federation politics because her father was involved in it. And every time anybody mentions her father, she looks uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And what a hero her father was and how if her father was alive, maybe they wouldn't have gone to war in the first place. And she's just like, mm, yeah, mm, mm. Uh, mm, change subject. <laughs> Can we talk about something that makes me less uncomfortable, like my fiance? And of course, Kai's like, yeah, but what do we do? When this is over, do we turn around and fight the Federation? <laughs> I don't know, Tom, do they? Spoilers. <laughs> this conversation also gives us Tom's favorite line of the entire film, which is Amaro <laughs> saying. <laughs> yes. Amaro saying, no one knows what Zeon Dekun was talking about. No one has any idea. Everyone is just talking out of their... E Okay, we are here again to talk about Encounters in Space. The third and final compilation movie for Mobile Suit Gundam. Meguri Ai is the Japanese name of the movie. We are joined once again by Angela. Angela, thank you for coming back after last time. Yeah, I'm excited <laughs> to talk about this one. I'm, I'm a little surprised that you came back after uh, Soldiers of Sorrow. Well, there were a lot of questions that I had, and I okay. hoped, I don't want to say I knew, but I hoped that I would have some answers. Well, I'm going to guess that you did get some answers, but not all of the ones you were looking for. Yes. Okay. We should open the way we usually do. What did you think of it? Did you like it? This one was pretty entertaining, not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> Angela watched about the last half hour of the movie here with us, and there were a couple of moments when you were audibly surprised yeah. or shocked by oh things that happened. Oh my gosh, it was great. It was like, this is the drama I was looking for. <laughs> did you feel like this one flowed better? Did it feel like more of a movie? Yes and no. Um, Movie-wise, I was 
focused. Movie two felt like really slow, but mm-hmm, this one was mm-hmm. like, okay, yes, we're going straight to the plot. I get it. There's obviously so many people we have to meet and talk about, and the movie like flowed through it really well. But on the other point, since there were so many people, I feel like I can tell we skipped a lot of scenes. Mm, okay. Yeah, I was also talking. I asked Nina a question before, and I asked if the movies were compiled by equal episodes. Um, Approximately, like covering an equal chunk of the series. They each cover it's, about it's a third. Roughly. The reason it's not quite exact is Gundam was originally planned to be four core. Mm-hmm. So it was going to be the full 52 episodes. They lost one when it got canceled prematurely, but then they got an additional four episodes. So it's like three core plus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first movie only covered the first core. The first movie was 13 episodes. Mm-hmm. The second movie was, I think, 16. Okay. And so then this one was the remaining 13 episodes. Okay. Just a very dense part of the show. Yeah. <laughs> Not that there weren't cuts, but uh, Tom and I were actually pretty surprised by how much they kept. They also managed to combine some episodes mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. like cover more or less the same event, but in two parts and combine it into less than the time it would have taken for one episode. Yeah, and they did that to pretty great effect. Just for an example, at the very beginning when they have that space battle with um, Ensign Drennan and he's got like two ships and he's trying to stop them. It's three ships, actually. Anyway, that space <laughs> battle at the beginning, that is originally two episodes worth of fighting because it's first a battle with Shar's ship mm-hmm. and then the battle with Dren's fleet. Oh, I see. And, and they then... just cut one of those. Mm-hmm. There's also an episode that uh, <laughs> this poor character gets introduced <laughs> and killed off in the same episode. Dang. The episode is named after him. Yep. And he's a new type and he gets introduced as a way to talk about new types a little bit more and to show us a little bit of the Xeon politics behind the scenes. But they just scrapped his whole episode. It like, wasn't worth <laughs> Was not worth introducing Shalia Bull. <laughs> That's his name, Shalia Bull. The episode was called The New Type Shalia Bull. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a good episode, but it cutting it was the right decision. Definitely. Mm. There's one more Lala fight. It's not super important. It gives us some more shades of like perhaps foreshadowing future conflict between humans and new types because she's supposed to be at the rear with her mobile suit using the little bits to Mm -hmm. attack, but she's supposed to have cover from a group of Dom mobile suits who just have regular pilots. But when they see her out there and see how good she is, they're like, oh, it's the Avatar. Avatar The Last Airbender. Basically, yeah. It's like, why are we even here? Yeah. Why are we we risking our necks? (laughs) We're just going to hang out behind her. Right. Like, what what even is the point of us Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when she is so good and this is her first ever battle? Did you feel like, you know, you said you felt like things have been cut, things have been left out. Were there parts that felt incomplete or confusing where you felt like... All of Lala. (laughs) (laughs) All of Lala. Okay. (laughs) She was like the manic pixie dream girl who just showed up out of nowhere, but then she was on Char's side, but then it felt like she and Amaro were like lovers for like a million years. <laughs> and I was just like, when did you even talk in this movie together? With their brains. <laughs> With their new type connection. <laughs> they understand each other so perfectly. So I guess it gets glossed over very quickly. What's implied in the show is that Lala is an orphan 
who Char finds somehow and has some inkling that she is a new type. He has some hint of her abilities. And so he plucks her out of obscurity and takes her to the Flanagan Institute, which is some sort of Xeon research facility. And he looks after her and he makes sure that she's taken care of after a fashion, but all in the interest of cultivating her as a battle new type. Mm. I mean, we do get that sense of like, this is a manic pixie dream girl, but also this is a like abused child oh i didn't get that at all okay who's like very psychologically unhealthy and has attachment issues which she's projecting all of them onto char <laughs> well and she'll her, do whatever he says he's her only connection he is her only relationship in her entire life and he's her savior right but then like that's why i was so confused why she just connected to amuro mm. randomly because mm -hmm. like if you like char so much or if you're so loyal to char why are you connecting with Amuro? New type. <laughs> I saw this as sort of with powerful enough new types, they have incredible empathy between each other. Mm -hmm. And so they start out when they're fighting very confused. Like, how can you fight for the reasons you fight? How can you fight for the reasons you fight? Like, right. they both think that the other is nuts mm -hmm. and they don't understand it all. But because of this intense empathy and this prolonged contact between them in a very like emotionally heightened situation, they gain like a deep understanding of each other, mm -hmm. almost like mind reading or empathy in the sense of you literally feeling another person's feelings. Mm -hmm. And that enables them to understand each other, but also creates like instant intimacy <laughs> between the two of them. You know, Angela brings up a really good point here, though. Part of what makes that new type connection between Lala and Amuro work in the show is that it's really the first time either one of them has encountered another new type. Oh, okay. They've had a couple of brushes before where they've started to connect a little bit and it's been stopped and they've been wrenched apart. And then this is the time that they're able to actually like connect completely. Mm -hmm. In the movie, when everybody's a new type and when we know for sure that Char is a new type already, like movies back, it's very different. It doesn't have that same sense of specialness. And so you're left wondering like, well, if it's just a new type thing, then why didn't she connect with Char in the same way? Because we know that Char is a new type. Right. In the show, we don't know Char is a new type. Oh, oh, okay, wait, hold on. So then currently when Lala and Amuro meet, it's just Lala and Amuro that we know for sure are new types. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, that changes things completely then. And at that point, we have like strong suspicions that Sela and Mirai are new types. Mm -hmm. But it's that moment when Amuro and Lala connect and then Char, Sela, and Mirai all realize that something has happened and they all are like, Amuro, Oh, no. no. <laughs> That's what confirms for us that all three of them are also new types. Mm. But up to that point, we don't know it. Okay. Did it feel, you sort of answered this already, that it felt like they had been lovers for a thousand years, right? That yeah. They were, that there was a romantic connection between yeah. the two of them, not just like friendship. Yes, for sure. That just confused me because I was like, you guys had that weird swan scene and then the car scene and that was it. And I was like, oh, okay, moving on fast. Do you not feel romantic <laughs> attachment to people who, who splash mud at you with their cars? I don't know. If you could suddenly read someone's mind. I don't know. Perhaps maybe I'm a romantic. No, 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 no. Let's, let's take that a step further. If you could suddenly read someone's mind and you were a 16-year-old boy. I was going to say, yeah, I don't, I don't want to read anyone's mind. And a 16-year-old mm -hmm. girl. Mm -mm. Yep. <laughs> I, I don't know how old Lala is, but somewhere around there, That's I'm sure. Fair. They're young. They're full and of suddenly, hormones and psychic powers. And suddenly completely know each other. Ugh. New type puberty would be the worst. <laughs> Future puberty. <laughs> 
I will say I thought that the scene between them right before Lala dies felt much more romantic to me in the movie than it did in the show. Yeah, it was different. Something about the way it was animated in the movie. I mean, but even after after she died and it was the final battle and Amuro was trying to escape, he was still talking to Lala. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, of all people. Yeah. He, <laughs> so, the, the disrespect to Matilda. <laughs> Maybe it's a leap on my part. And this is definitely informed by the show. But my understanding of this whole section was that Lala was such a powerful new type that she has essentially like superseded time and space and existence. She just like exists in the ether now. Because she has that line where she tells Amuro she can see all of time or like time itself. So she's just kind of out there now. (laughs) And so he can, in fact, talk to her because she's there and she talks to him. She's like, come on, Amuro, you can do it. New type your way out of this problem. (laughs) Or he's cracking up under the pressure. Also possible. I like my explanation better. (laughs) Oh, speaking about um, cracking under pressure, I'm going to change the subject right now. Go for Mm -hmm. it. But Amro's dad. Oh, yeah. When when I first saw him there, I was like, oh, no, Amro's cracked. (laughs) He's he's hallucinating right now. What's going on? (laughs) But the the dad is real? The dad is? I'm so questioning. I mean... One of the things you can do with a work of art like this is ask, did anyone other than Amuro see him? Yeah. And no one did. So you can't be 100% certain that Tem Ray is actually there and actually alive. I think he is. I think because he was in a spacesuit when he got knocked out of the colony in movie one. Mm -hmm. He didn't have enough oxygen to like be totally okay, but enough oxygen to survive until he was either found or managed to make it back inside the colony or something like that. And then uh, ends up on side six somehow. It's plausible. Was this in the anime? Yes. Okay. They reanimated parts of Amuro's interactions with his father and they added a bunch. The last scene that we get of his dad where he's like jeering and jumping Mm -hmm. around and yelling and then falls down the stairs. That was all new. That was not in the show. He stays in the apartment and he like cheers in a different kind of way. Mm -hmm. He doesn't go outside and fall down the steps. Well, and it's it's much less like, woo, the Federation's going to win and much more like, yeah, I'm the best scientist ever. I created the Gundam and the Gundam won that fight. Yep. If you can believe this in the show, Tem is even worse of a dad in those scenes. Oh, wow. Speaking of interesting character decisions, what did you think of Slager? Uh. <laughs> I wish I wish we could record Angela's eye roll. <laughs> I was going to say, this movie would have been the best if you guys did a React video, because, oh my goodness. The, origi- I, <laughs> the original uh. show episodes just had me, like, cursing I, nonstop was, for minutes. Nina was so angry, we had to stop watching. <laughs> we had to, like, stop and calm down and go back. I, I'm confused why he exists he, he yeah why he's necessary yeah like was it to throw off the groove of the, like the team was obviously they've been a while together so maybe they needed like like a wrench thrown at them just to mm-hmm. see how they would handle it but then he like dies pretty quickly so i was just like so what is the point of him yeah being there it's it's bizarre or they thought bright and mirai was too tidy or they thought they needed to complicate mirai as a character Oh, that was fun to watch. <laughs> it was like, get the popcorn ready. Oh, my God. This girl has like three lovers. <laughs> and then she picks the worst one. Uh, I So I'm assuming in the anime, they 
flush out why she nope. picks? Nope. Oh, not at all. That scene is exactly the same. What? Unchanged. They barely, like, he slapped her. That was, yeah. like, the most they've talked. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so it's, It makes no sense. I've never seen a compelling explanation for it. <laughs> the closest I can come is that Mirai has premonitions right before somebody dies. And so I think... The most plausible explanation, and I'm giving the show way too much credit when I do this, <laughs> is that Mirai had a premonition that Slager was going to die. When he came back alive, she was like, oh, my God. She goes down. She sees him. She's overcome with emotions. Because Slager is Slager, he assumes that when a young woman is overcome by emotion in his presence, it must be because she is overcome by attraction to him. And he, like, goes through this whole romance thing, and Mirai is just sort of, like, too overwrought to say anything but she leans into that kiss man that's true she gets knocked into that kiss. no she there's a there's a moment she gets knocked into him but then she does the like head tilt yeah. up eyes closed mm-hmm. lean she didn't have to do that <laughs> angela's with me she, <laughs> she gets it yeah yeah maybe she wanted a bad boy for like a hot second <laughs> well let me distract you both with a anecdote about the character design for slager The director went to the character designer and he was like, I want this very American seeming sort of character. I want him to be based on the main character in that Rocky movie that just came out. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) the character designer had never seen Rocky. And so he was just like, "Uh, uh, I'll draw the most American guy I can draw. (laughs) And so we get Slegger. (laughs) Yep. Wow. I guess two questions. This might be just be like anime logic, but can everyone, like literally everyone, hear everyone talk in their Gundams? Because that's like, a really good question. They'll be like, <laughs> "It's Char," and then Char would respond back, and I'm just like, "Wait, aren't you guys on different comms?" Like later, <laughs> later series are going to be a lot more disciplined about this. Because <laughs> um. Sayla would be screaming like, "Nissan, don't do this!" I'm just like, "Can he hear you?" <laughs> I asked the same question when we were watching the show. We started to assume that people who did this and seemed to hear each other were new types. Like, without knowing it, they were communicating psychically oh, oh, or see, something. I see, I see. And I would say for the scenes in Abawaku, in inside the Space Fortress, there's atmosphere there. Like, they probably are hearing each other. Mm-hmm. When it's like Shar and Amuro and their mobile suits are like this, and I'm making a gesture with my fists really close to each other. <laughs> I keep forgetting this is an audio medium. <laughs> but yeah, so when Shar and Amuro are at their mobile suits and they're like this, uh, that's probably more like a new type kind of experience. Or maybe it's just a metaphor. These are like the things they want to be saying to each other. Hypothetically, there could be very short range radio transmissions. Mm-hmm. So then my next question is because everyone, like even Bright, who's on white base, is like, it's Shar. And it's like, how do you know that's Shar? He's in a different mobile suit right now with the exception of the very last mobile suit though he's the only one who's ever in a red mobile suit Mm. it's his trademark yep speaking of char though what did you think of his character development in this episode was (laughs) i don't know okay that's a legit answer (laughs) are you left with more questions than answers about him yes but i also it's just like i don't know if his cause was worth it or not do you even know what his cause was so I guess he had two, one to revenge his father's death and the other to start a whole new new type civilization, basically. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what it seems like to us, although he never comes right out and says it. So it was kind of just like, I guess you have you have this much free time on your hands, go for it. But <laughs> what does this have to do with anything else? Well, he mentions 
it's all sort of <laughs> all over the place, right? Well, the problem with Shar is you never know when he's telling the truth, if he ever is. Mm. He's lying to everybody all the time. And so is it that there are shades of truth in it? Did he really feel hollow and empty after killing Garma? Or is that just something he told Kaecilia so that she wouldn't be suspicious of him so that he could kill her? Right? You never know. It sounds like his sort of new type supremacy-ish ideas are his interpretation of things that his father said. But then Amuro, Amuro has that great line, nobody really knows what Zion meant when he started talking about new types. Yep. <laughs> I really want to believe that was the creative staff commenting on the second movie, <laughs> which is just full of everybody talking vaguely about new types. And that's Amuro just being like, nobody knows what new types are. Nobody is saying anything, really. Before we move on, uh, did you have any other characters or character development moments that stood out to you? I mean, I guess we can talk about the big bad guy. Um, it's Which big bad the, guy? That, yeah, that's, that is. <laughs> Come on, I gotta get the names. Shara's not that big. <laughs> well, it was, I thought Dagwon was going to be the big bad guy. Ah. But then it was Giren. And it's so funny because the scene with both Yaren and Degwin when they're talking and Degwin's like, do you know this guy like named Hitler by any chance? And I was like, <laughs> oh, OK, yeah. <laughs> just, put, just put all the cards on the table. It's <laughs> like, if you don't get the big picture now, I'm just going to say the name. Um, and I was like, oh, so okay, he's the bad guy. I get it now. <laughs> well, and then and then Giran responds to that like, well, I don't really know who this Hitler guy is. Anyway, back to the war. Once we win it, let's do some ethnic cleansing. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Which would make Degwin, what, like the Kaiser or? Um, I mean, it's a good question. Something? Probably President von Hindenburg, mm. who was the president of Germany who empowered Hitler originally. Mm. Sounds about right. Did he also get killed machinating behind the scenes? No, I think he died of old age. Mm. Although von Hindenburg did have a very prominent mustache. Obviously. So. With a name like that, <laughs> I feel like the mustache is mandatory. <laughs> Dagoin letting all of us mustache lovers down. <laughs> all right, so Giren is Hitler. Mm. Or knockoff cut rate space Hitler. Besides that, what did you think of him as a character? Well, I guess that's one of the interesting parts of the story was that we can already tell that the war was ending before mm -hmm. we got to meet any of these guys. Um, so he didn't have much to show besides the fact that he was basically space Hitler. Um, yeah, just a real evil dude. <laughs> <laughs> He's a bit maniacal, isn't he? Mm. Sort of like, like lounging in his command chair and cackling during the battle. <laughs> we are unstoppable. Yeah, and he's like, his generals are just like, mm, maybe we should worry about some of these troops over here. <laughs> and he just keep being like, no, we're fine. It's like, mm. <laughs> oh, little sister, you don't have the guts to kill me. Oh, my God. I Yeah, th this is like when Tom mentioned, I just audibly like gasped. Because <laughs> so far with the girls, it's whenever they try to do something action-y, they either fail miserably or someone slaps them or just it, oh. or both basically happens. So I was very surprised when she just ups and shoots them. It's like, okay, <laughs> you did it. But then she also... What doesn't doesn't seem like the noblest of people. Oh yeah, she's not noble. <laughs> she's at not all. noble at all, but she seems like maybe the smartest of all of her mm. siblings. <laughs> the most sensible. She made the classic zombie mistake though. She trusted Shar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, did she trust him or was she just using him and then she didn't realize he was still alive when he blew her up? She knew that he was not completely trustworthy, but she thought that she could perhaps get him to take care of Girin for her. Yeah, well, and after Garma's death, Shar got like kicked out of the army and Kaecilia sent people to go and get him and bring him back in. Like oh. she brought him back. Mm-hmm even knowing that he was secretly Kasval Dekun mm-hmm. and planning to get revenge on them all. Well, she thought she could take advantage of him. If, if things had, had gone better for their side, she could have held that over him forever. You know, that's information that puts him in danger. Yeah. Shar doesn't seem like the sort of person to respond well to that kind of thing, but she couldn't have known that. I, I think she thought she had a handle on the situation. Clearly she didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she gets concerned before Girin does about the turn of the battle. Mm-hmm. She very reasonably is like, oh, I should probably leave. This is mm-hmm. not going well. We still have troops in these two other places. We're going to fall back. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that was one change because many parts were re-recorded. Her delivery right after she kills Girin is much more emotional in the show than in the film. Like her voice cracks or breaks a little bit because she's oh. she's like so emotional when she yells. Let me find that for you, actually, because it's it's one of my favorite performances in the show. Yeah, you see what I mean, or what Nina means. <laughs> <laughs> what we mean, we agreed. That was the other thing that they added here. So we talked when we covered the first movie, I think about. Like, why is Zeon fighting? The causes for the war were a little unclear. And we mentioned, you know, in the show, they say it's an independence movement. Mm -hmm. And they do say that at the very beginning of the first movie. We find out in this movie, uh, their sovereignty or self-governance or some degree of independence had already been recognized by Earth Federation. Before the war. They were already independent-ish. Or at least on, on the way to full independence. They had made progress in the independence direction. Which I think is just meant to solidify for us again, this isn't really, it's not solely about independence Mm. for the zombies, for Girin especially. Yeah, it's about power and ethnic cleansing. As long as we're talking about the leadership, let's talk about General Revel for a second. This is the (laughs) Federation like top guy who's got the big beard and the white hair Mm -hmm. uh, who gets killed by the solar ray Mm -hmm. system. And Revel's headache Do you remember this scene? Did it stick out to you? I don't think so, no. (laughs) It really stuck out to us because it's not in the show. But a little bit before Lala attacks, he gets this headache and he's like, oh, I have this really weird feeling. Which (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It makes it seem like he might be a new type, which would be super weird for this like 65, 70-year-old dude from Earth. Mm -hmm. Everybody's a new type. Yeah, I can see why the creator regrets this word. (laughs) (laughs) I like I don't know the intentions originally of this show, but it it turns the genre from a mecha to like fantasy magic real fast. And it's not what I signed up for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I found myself wondering after this movie, do we actually understand what new types are any better than we did before? <laughs> nope. So Angela and I chatted a little bit uh, before she started watching the end of the movie about the animation. Uh, Essentially, you were saying the version you saw is not the best picture quality. Right. Uh, But there was actually quite a lot, if you watch the Blu-ray, you can see it, of animation that had been redone, new animation, uh, not necessarily... 
it's not so different that it is jarring, but it is cleaner, crisper. Sometimes I found it jarring. Okay. In a couple of scenes. And I would say that probably the majority of the animation has actually been redone for this movie. Amongst the new animation is one that is actually quite famous in and of itself, which is a scene where two Zaku, which are the green mm-hmm. Xeon mobile suits, are like in a hangar or a hatch or a, just a depression on the surface of the asteroid. And one of them like shoves the other one yes. out mm-hmm. and then like points and is like, go. Mm-hmm. And then ducks back into it right before a bomb lands Right in, right in there and blows yeah. up that the Zaku that was doing the pushing. Mm-hmm. Nina and I had a bit of a debate about <laughs> what was happening in that scene. How did you read that? It was very human, which I guess, you know, when, when you're fighting with Mecha, you don't get to see that, um, the the cowardice of war. So you think the, the one being pushed didn't want to go into the fight and the one pushing him was like, you have to go? Oh, no, I think the one pushing him was also a coward. <laughs> <laughs> so... It's just, I guess it just goes to show how either naive or good-hearted I am, <laughs> depending on one's interpretation. I thought he saw the bomb coming and was pushing oh. the other guy to safety. Oh, that's so nice of you. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? How surprisingly naive of you, my dear Nina. Because <laughs> he does get blown up like right after. Yeah. But then why wouldn't he leave with him? If, if they can't both get free at the same time, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one thing I wanted to ask. Was there was there a love triangle going on with Frabo? That depends on whether or not you think there is a line of love between Amaro and Fra. Well, I originally didn't think so. But then the when he was telepathically talking to her, the, the subtitles, I didn't hear what he actually was saying in Japanese. But he said, like, my my dear sweet Frabo or something like that. Skina. Skina Fra. My like my, my favorite my, like my, my liked my beloved yeah so then I, I was like what <laughs> <laughs> who talks like who, what 16 year old talks like this? he also calls her Sela Sama which I think is also different from the show I think in the show he calls her Sela San I think he's less formal with both of them in the show and then they they upped it here I don't know why <laughs> I mean Angela you've watched a lot of anime you know how it goes like your childhood friend is like your default love interest <laughs> so even if Amuro didn't have any interest in Fra like there was still going to be right. the expectation of something mm-hmm. from both of them. I also feel like it's a very normal thing for a young person. Like, oh, this person used to have a crush on me and I don't like them like that. And then like, wait, they don't like me anymore? Who is this <laughs> other interloper who has stolen their affection from me even though I didn't care? <laughs> like, he, he handles it well. He does. He doesn't mm. make a thing of it. But I do think he's jealous a bit mm-hmm. because they've sort of patched up their relationship, I think, because they both resigned themselves to the fact that it was not going to be romantic. Mm-hmm. That, like, we are dear old friends and we have this closeness between us because we've known each other a long time and been through a lot together. But this is not this is not a boyfriend girlfriend thing. And then their relationship improved. But he's still kind of like, but but my fra. <laughs> <laughs> no, Amara. Hayato's fra. You have the Gundam. Oh, that was super interesting. I wanted to talk about how, like I said before, it kind of seemed like it moved away from the mecha genre. And that kind of happened visually Mm because he actually stepped out of the Gundam at the end. And it becomes very personal, very human. Mm -hmm. They make that real explicit when Shar and Amuro are fighting in the Museum of Arms and Armor, Mm -hmm. (laughs) where they're like, 
you lured me here because... Because you don't think my new type abilities will be an advantage and with a physical skill when it comes to actually using my body. Right. In some ways, the mobile suits are bodies and the humans inside them are souls or id or like something on that like psycho-spiritual mm-hmm. level. And so when they're out of the mobile suits, they're engaging in this much more like intimate, visceral kind of way. But also cerebral, like this is a yeah. battle of ideology and philosophy mm-hmm. rather than just a fight over who is stronger and faster and more able to do mobile suit stuff. Right. Who's a better Who's a better shot? <laughs> yeah. And even after we've gone from the mobile suits to fighting hand to hand, their swords both break mm-hmm. and they go like forehead to forehead and they're yeah. actually like fighting in their brains. Until Sela slams into them and physically forces them apart. <laughs> Almost like Sela is caught between her brother and Amaro. <gasps> oh, yeah. <laughs> it was like so many like, wait, what's going on? <laughs> Did I miss something? <laughs> Not really. There, is there isn't just... much more of that in the show. Um, they are an item in the books. Oh. Which were written afterwards. Isn't she? How old is she again? A little bit older than Amuro, but only like a year older. Oh, okay. I think. Yeah, because even Shar was like, go back to Amuro. And it's like, why? <laughs> <laughs> and and be a good woman. Yeah, I was like, mm. thanks, Thanks for the hug, my extremely <laughs> I mean, patronizing older brother. Oh, that, their whole relationship was like, what is this? I don't know any siblings like this. <laughs> <laughs> Aristocrats who lost their parents at a very young age and were raised in exile and then were separated for many years. Yeah, lots of trauma. I don't think. Also, I mean, Shar is just... I've I've yet to see Shar have any interactions that I don't quite know how to phrase this. He expects his sister to just do what he says, Mm -hmm. even though he hasn't explained it, he hasn't given her any reasons. She is basically an adult, and he's like, quit the army, because I said so. Bye. (laughs) And then... (laughs) And expects her to do it, and is shocked when she doesn't do it. And his whole attitude toward Lala, and the way he treats Lala, like, he doesn't respect at least younger women. I didn't know whether that was (laughs) a sexist thing or just his ego. It's like that with everybody. Char doesn't respect anyone. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, listen, he's got kind of a blunted affect. He pursues adrenaline-based thrills. He has, like, almost no moral compunctions. You know, you can draw whatever conclusions you want to about his psychology from those factors, but I don't think Char is a normal sort of person, and it's a lot to expect normal interactions from him. Well, and to be fair, like, he never attempts to take that patronizing attitude with, say, Kaecilia. Who might be the only other woman we ever see him interact with. I think she is. Yeah, it's just the three of them. (laughs) But I think there's a difference because he wanted to kill her. So he was just kind of playing along. Is Wiley. Yeah. Well, or just what it really is, is he treats Lala and Sela the way he would treat men serving under him. It's like affectionate, but also I am your commanding officer and you Mm -hmm. will do what I say. But it's different. Like, he doesn't treat Lala the way he treats Dren. No. He's much more manipulative with Lala. Yeah. He tries to manipulate Sela, too. Mm. He's trying to use, like, levers of control on her. He just doesn't 
understand know what they are for her. <laughs> well, he's like i'm your big brother do what i say but also your big brother's dead so it's just like <laughs> this is very hard to follow <laughs> what you're trying to convey here oh, in the show he definitely did not show up on a horse that was new <laughs> in the show Sela like stopped outside of a broken down old farmhouse and while she's looking around char like jumps into her car and points a gun at her oh and then he realizes who she is he points the gun because he thinks she's like a random Federation person. Yeah, that's the other thing. Like, I didn't know how much he actually cared for Sela because after he realizes that she stayed with the Federation, he doesn't like make sure that she's fine. He's still just like, I'm going to kill everybody. Hopefully she's not in one of these ships. <laughs> he ordered her to leave and gave her some gold. So he just assumed that she would follow his instructions. And he almost kills her. Yeah. That Oh, that's uh, something that did get cut. There's a whole fight in the show where Sela is out in her fighter, but she's terrified to attack anybody because she thinks they could be her brother. Mm. So she like can't bring herself to attack Xeon people because like, what if it's my brother? What if it's my brother? But then she realizes that he's crazy and needs to be stopped. Did you have any other questions for us before I ask my final question? Hmm. Well, I guess the obvious one is the ending. Um, so then what happens with the rest of the war? Because like you said, there was like, they didn't actually make it to the actual Xeon mm-hmm. colony. So, but they mentioned they reach an armistice, which means they, uh, right. they come to an agreement between the two governments. That right. the fight that we just saw at Abawaku was the last fight of the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then it's like, you know, how, you know, they lost basically all of their their leaders so what happens to all the zeon territory where did char go like what did everyone else do after the war ended so would you be interested in a sequel or (laughs) are you you saying there is a sequel (laughs) well they did keep making them for the next 40 years oh oh but there is a direct sequel to this one that's going to come out about six years later yeah well and Um, you say direct sequel there's a time skip yeah, that's they, true. They jump but, like, ahead. It's the characters, same characters. No, some of the same, but it's the same world. Mm-hmm. So it's after the the rebuilding in the war. Uh, I mean, we know from the the scene with Degwin and that other politician that there are like non zombie <laughs> political figures still in Zeon. A lot of <laughs> political figures in countries that lost World War II were purged. For instance, in Japan, a bunch of political figures uh, were not permitted to be involved in politics for, mm-hmm. for a period of like 15 years. Mm-hmm. But you would have had other people who were out of power during the wartime government who had been in political positions before or had done sort of like other government level or like large organizational level work mm-hmm. who could step into those roles. And what Nina alludes to is that there's a side text to this, which is that the whole course of the war has kind of corresponded to the course of World War II, or at mm-hmm. least the war in the Pacific. Abawaku, this final battle, is the Battle of Okinawa. And after that, there was just nothing, like there were no significant Japanese military forces left and no will to continue the fight. Mm-hmm. Even though the homeland had not been conquered, it was time to surrender. Right. And it's the same situation mm-hmm. for Zeon here. Uh, I sort of liked <laughs> when the show ended that they didn't feel the need to like, jump a few months ahead and show us what everyone's doing after the war. Because that's a whole nother show. And in some ways, kind of irrelevant to the story that we're being told here. Like, mm-hmm. their life outside of the army, assuming that a bunch of them leave, is not really relevant to the story of mm-hmm. them as the crew of the White Base 
And we really haven't gotten any vignettes of the characters that would suggest what they might do after this. You know, we didn't get a scene of Kai and Hayato hanging out in the canteen right. and Hayato saying, when all of this is over, I'm going to go start my own judo dojo or whatever. And Kai saying, yeah, see, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are all good points. But I guess, I guess the most concerning one would be Char mm. because... Mm-hmm. I guess he would become the next bad guy or like the, the, the big boss. Tom can't say anything <laughs> because to confirm or deny would constitute a spoiler. I will say, uh, did you notice the interesting thing in the closing credits? During the closing credits, there's that scene of one of the Xeon ships flying away. You guys are referring to the two figures? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. One of whom is definitely Char. Oh, okay. You can tell by the helmet. And the cape. Oh, I didn't look that closely. <laughs> uh, which is significant because the show did not confirm that Shar was still alive. In the show, at the end of this, we think Shar has maybe died mm. in a Bawaku. We don't really know. We don't see him escape. So then who's the other person? Well, some other Xeon person. Okay, I don't know. so probably not. <laughs> Po- yeah. possibly important, possibly not important. Yeah. Maybe Garma's been alive this whole time. <gasps> oh my gosh. It was a plot between the two of them. <laughs> Garma was lying in wait to rescue Shar after wiping out all of the other zombies. Now Garma will rule Zeon. <laughs> I would watch that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I actually think that a lot of visual and storytelling decisions in this movie are because the people creating the show realized how popular Char was and how much people liked Char. And so they were like, all right, give everybody more Char. Confirm that Char is still alive. So maybe we get another show with Char in it. Yep. (laughs) One of the things that Nina is referring to is that uh, there were a couple of scenes in the movie where Char takes his mask off and Mm -hmm. you get to see that he's this like blonde, blue eyed, pretty boy. In the show, he does not take his mask off, except at the very, very end. Yeah, he almost never takes his mask off in the show. He takes it off in front of Sayla. He takes it off in the shower. And then he has the towel over half his face, (laughs) so it's like he's still masked. And then he takes it off when he goes to kill Kaecilia, which I think they were like, oh, people think Char is very handsome. I guess we should just show Char's face more. (laughs) Alternatively, they didn't want to deal with animating his eyes. (laughs) in the show and so they kept the mask on him all the time so they would not have to animate uh his eye expressions Mm -hmm. good cheat sheet i guess that's why like a lot of animated cartoons like with characters who wear masks it's all just white Mm -hmm. it's just Mm -hmm. like eh, let's not deal with that yeah well that's um i didn't really notice in the movies because we were used to it from the show early on when we were talking about the show we discussed that some of the characters, and particularly Amuro, had the big, expressive anime eyes. Mm. And some of them had, you know, black dot with outline. <laughs> it was like very simple, mm-hmm. straightforward. Yeah, Bright typically gets black dot with outline. <laughs> Bravo gets big, shiny anime eyes. Part of that was youth, but a lot of it was that animating expressive eyes takes that much more time, that much more effort. Mm-hmm. They were on a tight budget and a tight schedule. And so they prioritized characters who they felt needed to show more emotion. So Yeah. I remember reading once, this was a few years back, but someone was saying that drawing a modern anime eye takes as much time and effort as it used to take to draw an entire scene. Dang. I mean, I get that. You know, it's like when you're trying to draw one eye and then the other eye looks completely different and you're just like, I don't know what well, to and you do. Look at, you look at the modern anime eyes and there's like, there's so much going on. Yeah. It's in different colors. It's so detailed and like the resolution is so high. Yeah, it's oof. 
it's not worth it, anime. <laughs> or stop, is it? Stop killing your production assistants. Well, th- that goes without saying. Oh, yeah. Mm, optional crunch. That was actually a reference to a video game thing, but I'm sure it happens in, yeah. in, in it, studios too. Where they're like, well, yes, we have crunch time, but it's totally optional. Nobody has to do it. By the way, Nina, I am going to need you to stay late tonight to record some stuff for one of the bonus episodes. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> and Nina disappeared into the night, never to be heard from again. <laughs> so I guess I'm in the market for a new podcast co-host. Angela, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> what was your favorite scene? Favorite scene. As much as I didn't like the whole ordeal with the new types, it was kind of nice at the last battle when Amuro was talking with everybody. That, that was, was really that cool. Was it's so sweet. moving. Yeah. yeah. I've watched that ending bit there between watching the show for myself, watching it for the podcast, and then watching the movie several times. I've probably seen that scene 15 times, and I still get a little choked up every mm. time. Those kids, though. This week in research, we discuss the real, actual battleship Yamato and how Indian religions influenced New Age philosophy and, perhaps, Gundam. In episode 1.34, we talked about how Giran Zabi seemed to have a personal connection to the enormous mobile suit carrier Dolos, in a fashion that is usually reserved only for main characters and their mobile suits. The mighty Dolos easily outmatches any single ship on the Federation side, and it is one of the linchpins in Giran's plan for the last-ditch defense of Abawaku. It plays a major role in that next-to-last episode, but it is ultimately destroyed by the numerically superior Federation forces. An unusual amount of attention is given to it in the show, in terms of its role in the story of the battle, the time spent depicting it, the repeated references to it. Seriously, it is shown nine times and mentioned by name five times during Space Fortress Abawaku. That is especially weird, since there are no characters aboard it, and it hasn't played any role in the story so far. Well, not no role, because back in episode 39, the new type, Shalia Bull, it was the Dolos, unnamed, but there's no other Xeon ship that looks like it at this point in the show, so it must have been the Dolos, that delivered Shalia Bull to Kaecilia's base in the lunar city Granada. Transport duty is kind of an ignominious job for Xeon's mightiest warship, but there's no escaping it for the Dolos because, well, that's exactly what its real historical analog ended up doing too. See, the Imperial Japanese Navy in World War II also built a massive, impossibly strong warship that could easily outmatch any single ship in the United States' much more numerous fleet. In fact, they built two of them, Musashi and Yamato. Just like the Dolos, they were designed to be capable of fighting multiple enemy battleships simultaneously. They and their fleets were sent back and forth to different naval bases in far-flung conquered territories. They utterly failed to achieve their intended purpose, and they were pressed into transport missions instead. And like the Dolos, the mighty Yamato even survived long enough to be committed to the final last-ditch defense of Pacific Fortress Okinawa, and was then sunk. Yamato and Musashi were sister ships, with Yamato built first, and so they are called the Yamato-class battleships. And yes, although we aren't there yet, it will eventually be established that the Dolos is the lead ship of a Dolos class. We don't know why exactly Xeon invested so much in building one overwhelmingly strong warship, but it seems likely their thinking ran along the same lines as the Japanese military planners who dreamed up the Yamato. 
at least as early as 1934, and probably before, the ultra-nationalist militarists in the Japanese government had concluded that the greatest threat to the expansion of the Japanese empire and their hegemony over the Pacific was going to be the United States Navy. They also knew that there was no way Japanese industrial production could match the United States once it geared up for total commitment to the wartime economy. In fact, the United States built more of every class of surface warships in any single year from 1942 to 1945 than the Japanese built during the entire course of the war. By 1945, the U.S. Navy was larger than every other Navy in the world combined. I mean, we've talked extensively before about the shipbuilding capabilities and the access to resources to build ships <laughs> being just of completely different scales. It's really not comparable. Yeah. The one advantage Japan did have was a head start in manufacturing big ships, and they planned to use that head start to build warships so large and so powerful that they could take on the more numerous but smaller and weaker U.S. battleships in a single climactic battle that would break the United States' will to fight even if it failed to destroy the U.S. capacity to fight. You might ask, why were the U.S. warships so much smaller and weaker than the super battleships of the Yamato class? Well, after World War I, the five major victors in that conflict, the U.K., France, the United States, Italy, and Japan, had the five strongest navies in the world. They had all been allies, but now that the war was over and their shared enemies defeated, many, especially many in America, were afraid that a major naval arms race was imminent. And it absolutely was, even though nobody could really afford it at the time. Despite having just fought what was then the largest and most horrifying war in history, the Wilson administration in the U.S. was planning massive expansions to the U.S. fleet, and the Japanese and British plans were not far behind. However, in 1920, Wilson was replaced by Harding, and the new administration wanted no part of any of that. In November 1921, the Harding government gathered the five allies in Washington, D.C. for a disarmament conference, led by then-Secretary of State and later Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Charles Evans Hughes. He actually gave a, a speech to open the arms conference, which is now quite famous, mm -hmm. or at least at the time was quite famous and is credited with significantly hastening the decision to disarm because he gets up there and he gives this very like passionate speech in which he says, the way to disarm is to disarm. <laughs> it's a clarity that I think people appreciate. Yeah. It's very brave when you think about it because everybody wrings their hands like, oh, we're so worried and oh, it's so dangerous. And how do we how do we take this path? And oh, and here are all these, you know, here's our 12 step three year plan or mm -hmm. whatever. And he's like, no, just do do it. Just do it. <laughs> it took three months of negotiations, but eventually the five powers agreed to more or less the following total fleet tonnage would be limited. The U.S. and the U.K. would be entitled to have equivalent fleets, with Japan entitled to a fleet three-fifths as large, and France and Italy each allowed to build fleets just over half as large as Japan's. Capital ships could be no larger than 35,000 tons of standard displacement, and could carry guns no larger than 16 inches or 40 centimeters in caliber. This was later revised down to 14 inches or 35 centimeters. This became the Washington Naval Treaty, and... It did, for a time, slow down the arms race. The terms were modified in 1930 by the London Naval Treaty, and then again in 1936 by the second London Naval Treaty, which sort of kind of lasted until 1939, when World War II started. But by then, those various naval treaties only bound the United States, the UK, and France. 
in 1934 anticipating war with the United States and resenting their subordinate treatment compared to the U.S. and U.K., the Japanese repudiated the treaty and, in absolute secrecy, they began the design and construction of the Yamato-class battleships. Designing and building a battleship from the start is not a speedy process, and the Yamato wasn't commissioned until a week after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Its sister ship, Musashi, was commissioned a year later. The U.S. entered the war with a fleet of treaty-compliant 35,000-ton battleship designs like the North Carolina and South Dakota classes, as well as older and smaller ones like the 27,000-ton New York class. By contrast, the Yamato displaced more than 71,000 tons, more than double the treaty limit. Wow. Rather than treaty-compliant 14-inch guns, it was equipped with 18-inch, 46-centimeter caliber guns, the largest ever fitted on a warship. The battleship Yamato, mightiest ship in the world when it was built, and given the name of the semi-mythic ancient kingdom from which the Japanese people descended, was a symbol of Japan's national greatness. And it certainly has retained much of that power, illustrated neatly enough in the seminal science fiction anime Space Battleship Yamato, where the actual original Yamato is dredged up from the ocean floor, retrofitted as a spaceship, and sent out into the galaxy on a mission to save all of humanity. There is, by the way, a rumor about First Gundam that claims Tomino hated the sneaking nationalism of Space Battleship Yamato so much that he started planning Gundam as a rebuke to that sort of science fiction wish fulfillment. If that's true, then it's easy to see why Gundam's Yamato analog would be an enemy warship that gets wrecked in its first real fight. Now that's not the only reason why a Yamato analog like the Dolos might be depicted as impressive but ultimately useless. For all of the real Yamato's impressive specs, the battleship played practically no role in the war. Yamato was present for the Battle of Midway and the Battle of the Philippine Sea, but those were carrier-against-carrier carrier battles, fought in the air. She fired her guns at American ships only once during an inconclusive skirmish. Most of what she did during the war was sail back and forth between the home islands and naval bases in the South Pacific. Lack of ammunition for her uniquely huge guns and lack of fuel to propel her enormous size limited her utility throughout the war. But she did have enormous carrying capacity, and that was put to use. Her greatest contributions to the war effort are probably best measured in the numbers of troops and the amount of materiel that she ferried between the Yokosuka naval base near Tokyo, the Kure naval base near Hiroshima, and the battlefields of the South Pacific after the fall of the Solomon Islands, just like the Dolos carrying Shalia Bull to Granada after the fall of Solomon. By April 1945, most of the Imperial Japanese fleet was at the bottom of the ocean, and what was left had barely enough fuel to sortie out of port. The Yamato, for by now the Musashi had been sunk, accompanied by eight destroyers and one light cruiser, was issued enough fuel for a one-way voyage to Okinawa. The ships would fight their way through to the islands and there beach themselves, firing on the Allied invasion fleet until destroyed. The senior admirals who ordered this suicide mission hoped that it would uphold the traditions and glory of the navy. The commanders of the ships assigned to the mission unanimously opposed it as a futile waste of lives and resources perhaps resembling something of the conflict we see in the White Base and their feelings about Federation High Command's orders. <laughs> but after these commanders were informed that the Emperor expected them to do their utmost to repel the U.S. invasion, they accepted the plan and made ready to depart. At dawn on April 7, six days after the invasion of Okinawa began, the Yamato's task force left the shelter of the coast of Kyushu, the southmost of Japan's home islands. 
by 10 a.m., two U.S. Navy task forces, one of battleships and one of carriers, were racing each other to be the first to engage the mighty Yamato. The latter, eight carriers and almost 400 planes, made first contact at 12 o'clock. With no aircraft of their own, the Japanese force had to rely on their anti-aircraft batteries. And the mighty Yamato alone had more than a hundred of these. For an hour and a half, she endured wave after wave of bombs and torpedoes. And by the end of it, her hull was so full of holes and her lower compartments so full of water that she could move no faster than 10 knots, a third of her normal speed. And it was in that condition that the fourth wave of U.S. planes found her. 20 minutes later, she started to capsize, and 20 minutes after that, she exploded with such ferocity that the blast was observed 120 miles away, and may have downed several U.S. planes still in the area. Of her more than 3,000-man crew, 280 survived, (laughs) and thus ended the last major naval engagement of the Pacific War. There is a savage sort of irony to the fate of the Yamato, mightiest battleship in the world, sunk from the air after sortieing with a cruiser and a small fleet of destroyers, but without a fighter escort, in Japan's last major naval battle. Four years prior, on December 9, 1941, the Royal Navy's most advanced battleship, the HMS Prince of Wales, escorted by a cruiser and a small fleet of destroyers, but without a fighter escort, was attacked by aircraft from a Japanese carrier force just before noon, and after less than three hours of intense aerial attack, that battleship too capsized and sank, marking both one of Japan's first naval victories in the war and the first time a capital ship was sunk solely by naval air power. But it seems that in the extremities of war, the Japanese forgot the lessons that they themselves had been teaching. There are very few black and brown people in First Gundam. There are a few, and we've talked about how some of the names and characterizations may reflect Japanese colonialism, patterns of immigration to and from South America, and so on. Until his death, Ryu Jose, who we are pretty sure is of Japanese and South American heritage, is the darkest skinned of our main cast. Just a few episodes later, we are introduced to Lala Soon. Her heritage is never explained or explicitly laid out, but her character design indicates that she is Indian. She becomes one of our most significant characters, is arguably a more powerful new type than Amuro, and seems to understand her abilities better than any other new type in the show. When new types and the philosophical conversations about and between them started coming up in the show, we made the connection to New Age philosophy. Lala's prominence invites us to look more closely at how Indian culture and religion influenced New Age movements and philosophy. Two caveats. (laughs) First, there's no comprehensive definition for what we mean by New Age. According to the Wikipedia page, New Age refers to a range of spiritual and religious beliefs and practices that developed in Western nations during the 70s. So, pretty vague. It would be about equally precise for us to just say, woo, (laughs) woo age (laughs) philosophy. I'm sure someone's made that joke before. I'm thinking specifically about the adoption of Hindu spirituality, practice of transcendental meditation, and emergence of the human potential movement that came out of the United States counterculture movements of the 60s. Secondly, while we have talked a bit in the past about student movements in Japan in the 60s, I couldn't find good sources on whether or how the New Age zeitgeist in the West affected Japan. Though I did find evidence that research was being done in Japan in the 70s on how meditation affects brainwaves. I think it's pretty fair for us to say that Gundam is evidence of New Age philosophy influencing Japan. I also think that's pretty fair. So I'm making an assumption. 
Given the way that new types are written and Lala's presence in the show, I'm going to jump to the conclusion that new types were inspired by new age spirituality. There's maybe a little hint towards that in Sela's conversation with Amaro when she says he's a new type. He says people usually call him an old type and she says something about, oh yeah, you're not very far out. That's going to be very interesting and relevant shortly. (laughs) (laughs) Some definitions. Hindu scriptures are referred to as the Vedas, and the Vedanta refers specifically to the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads, which focus on religious philosophy rather than religious practices. Bringing these specific teachings and Hatha Yoga, which is what we in America typically think of when we talk about yoga, westward was a conscious decision on the part of various teachers because these were thought to be more palatable to a Western audience than more overtly religious forms of Hinduism. And in case you don't buy that Hinduism provided much of the inspiration for new type abilities and Lala and Amaro's stated philosophies, allow me to summarize some key principles that have been widely adapted in the West. Uh, Quoted from the book American Veda by Philip Goldberg, which was my principal resource for this research. One, our innate unity with divinity is obscured by ignorance. We identify with our individual egos when our true identity is the transcendent self, which is divine. Individuals can awaken to their divine nature through any number of pathways and practices. No single one is right for everyone. Spirituality is a developmental process, moving through a progressive series of stages, each with tangible mental and emotional benefits. Fully realizing one's true nature brings an end to suffering, a state of liberation or enlightenment. (laughs) And then, specifically related to transcendental meditation which is a technique that has been described as both religious and non-religious, as an aspect of a new religious movement, as rooted in Hinduism, and as a non-religious practice. (laughs) Dig into that some more (laughs) later. But the potential benefits of transcendental meditation, as described by its creator, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, in his 1963 book, are the conscious mind gains familiarity with deeper levels of the mind, bringing the subconscious within the capacity of the conscious mind. Expanded awareness in daily activity, ability to transcend all mental activity, and experience the source of thought, which is said to be pure silence, pure awareness, or transcendental being, to experience the ultimate reality of life. Which all sounds like new type stuff to me. (laughs) Uh, With that, let's talk some history. The foundations of Hinduism's influence on American artistic and religious life start further back than I expected, in the Romantic and Idealist Poets and Philosophers of Europe. That's Romantic and Idealist with capital letters. These are artistic movements. Uh, And this was in the early 1800s. That was when Europeans and Americans started to get more access to translations of Hindu texts. Shortly thereafter, these texts would influence and shape the Transcendentalist movement in the United States. Ralph Waldo Emerson read them extensively, and there's a clear influence on the development of his own writing and ideas. In turn, these texts and Emerson's own writing influenced Thoreau and Walt Whitman. Through the 1800s, the influence continues to crop up in various new religions and spiritual movements, including New Thought and the Theosophical Society, which sounds like a band name. (laughs) Uh, And by the late 1800s, the ground had been broken on more traditional teachings, The Vedanta Society, founded in the late 1800s, still has centers, retreat houses, and study circles all over the U.S. It influenced Aldous Huxley and Joseph Campbell. There were lectures and events at Harvard University and the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, all before World War II. 
After the war, Hindu religious leaders appeared in Time magazine, and Veda inspired the human potential movement and beat poets like Allen Ginsberg. So it wasn't as if Hinduism's influence on American culture appeared out of nowhere. <laughs> but the 60s saw a shift away from the conformity of the 50s to a counterculture interested in getting back to nature, finding oneself, celebrating and transcending the body, and questioning conventional cultural and religious beliefs. Hatha yoga studios proliferated, and books on Eastern philosophy and religion, both original texts in translation and new books written in English, became much more available. I keep saying Hatha yoga because, as I learned through this research, there are many different types of yoga, most of which are spiritual disciplines that don't have anything to do with the physical activity that we think of as yoga. Hatha yoga is a type of yoga, but there are many different ones. During the 60s, there was an odd synthesis of psychedelic drug culture and hippie culture with some Vedic principles. I say odd because most guru were solidly anti-drug. The only drug you need is your mind and your spirit. No, they, and they wanted people to come to these teachings and to absorb this knowledge with a clear mind. <laughs> of course, I immediately wondered if like drug-induced new types were going to be a thing. Future <laughs> drugs. Uh, and then starting in 1967, we get a string of events that, because of their international impact and proximity in time to the start of First Gundam, seem most likely to have brought these ideas to our creator's attention. In 1967, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi gave a public lecture at the Hilton Hotel in London. In the crowd were three members of the Beatles, John, Paul, and George. George especially had already done considerable reading, research, and thinking about, quote, cosmic questions, consciousness, and Vedic texts. He knew he needed to start meditating, but didn't have any idea how and was looking for a teacher. Which seems funny now when there are books, audio guides, apps, <laughs> anything you could possibly want will teach you how to meditate. But at the time, he had done just enough reading to know meditation was important, but had never had an opportunity to be taught how to do it. And so just a few days after meeting Maharishi, the Beatles, along with Mick Jagger, Marianne Faithful, and a number of other people, attended a 10-day meditation course with Maharishi to learn his transcendental meditation technique. I won't dig into this too deeply, but in essence, transcendental meditation involves the silent repetition of a specially chosen mantra. The following winter, the Beatles traveled to Maharishi's ashram in Rishikesh, India. An ashram is like a hermitage or a monastic community. It's a religious retreat. This is where they wrote most of the White Album. If I remember correctly, one of them was there for just a, a week or two, but a couple of them were there for a month or more. In addition to the Beatles, other proponents of Maharishi's teaching included Mia Farrow, Mike Love of the Beach Boys, and prominent socialites and heiresses Nancy Cook de Herrera and Doris Duke. Because these were all people who attracted international media attention, the international media developed a sudden interest in meditation. Meditation became so common that some activists in the Berkeley area worried it would lead people to complacency and away from political protest. <laughs> Goldberg points out that while the rich and famous had been spreading Indian spirituality since Emerson's time, what happened in the 60s and 70s was orders of magnitude bigger. Maharishi was on the cover of the New York Times Sunday Magazine. His appearances consistently sold out. He was interviewed by Johnny Carson for The Tonight Show. And these appearances and celebrity endorsements are the tip of the iceberg. 
This wasn't just something that appealed to hippies and college kids. Some of the first people to get interested were like clean cut parental types. <laughs> Meditation was being talked about in daytime talk shows and getting picked up by stay at home mothers. Clint Eastwood <laughs> did transcendental meditation and talked to his friends about how much he enjoyed it. Like, it was everywhere. <laughs> Goldberg goes on to describe Maharishi as the Henry Ford of American Veda and transcendental meditation as his Model T. He created something that began as a luxury for sort of quirky rich people, <laughs> but quickly became accessible to everyone. And his success created a market for competitors. By the late 70s, the mania around transcendental meditation specifically had died down, but it had already left indelible marks on American culture. Obviously, this piece is very U.S.-focused, but newspapers all over the world would have been talking about the Beatles that would not have been confined to the English-speaking world. We did some research looking for information specifically about New Age philosophy and Hindu influence in Japan, but it's, there's not very much to be found on those subjects in English. Certainly, we can say that Hinduism does exist in Japan and has had some influence, and New Age philosophy is totally a thing in Japan and certainly was in the 60s and 70s. But if you have any good sources or any good information that links those two, we would love to hear it. Part of what makes it tricky is that there were a lot of new religions developing in Japan at this time. And so if you search for New Age, you tend to find new religions, even if that's not quite what you're looking for. With this episode, we have finished covering First Gundam. Woo! Go us. Thank you all for taking the ride with us. It's been really fun, and we've really appreciated all of your participation in the podcast so far. We've got a lot of exciting things planned for Zeta, and we can't wait to start covering it. Before we do, let's step back and do something we haven't done yet, which is just to review the movies. I think we can agree that the first movie, it's not great, but it's fine. Yeah, I think that's an accurate assessment of my feelings about the first movie. <laughs> and I think that's about where Angela came down as well. With the slight exception being that the new animation is really great. Agreed. I thought the new stuff they added was fantastic. But it really undermines Amuro as a character. And that's a significant problem. Yep. The second movie is bad. None of us enjoyed it. It felt like a slog. It was hard to make sense of... I couldn't understand why they made any of the changes that they did make or why they didn't change other things that they should have changed. Well, so to give a little credit where it's due, we did like what they were trying to do when they <laughs> cut together some of the episodes to make them feel as if they were happening simultaneously. Mm -hmm. But the execution was not great. Agreed. Some very bad judgment calls were made about what to cut and what to keep. The third movie, though, is a little bit trickier. It's definitely the best of the movies. It's a bit difficult having seen the show first because I so appreciated the emotional depth of the show and the nuance that it had and the subtlety that it had. And a lot of that disappears by necessity in the movie because they're trying to get through the same amount of content in less time. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to judge the movie on its own merits is what I'm saying. <laughs> I can basically only look at it in comparison to the show and it's never going to be as good. It is pretty, though. Yeah. There are fewer moments where I was like, ooh. Hmm. Okay. 
you know, there are many suggested watch orders for Gundam, but one of them is that you start with first Gundam and you watch the TV show up until they go back into space and then you switch over to watching the movie. I think a person could do that without losing much. As we pointed out, they don't make as many major changes. And the stuff that they do cut out is a little less essential. But it sounds like you would vote, watch the whole series, don't bother with the movies. That would be my first choice. However, very interesting little bit of information about the movies. When the first Gundam film premiered in 1981, 15,000 people showed up. The event is considered a turning point in the history of anime and was referred to as the day that anime changed by the Asahi Shimbun newspaper. The third film was 1982's fourth highest grossing Japanese film. So (laughs) (laughs) I may prefer the show, but the reason we got more Gundam is the movies. People went nuts for it. So based on all of that, I'm going to say the official Mobile Suit Breakdown recommendation for watching First Gundam is watch the whole show and then watch the third movie. That sounds about right. And we do recommend you watch Kukuru's Doan's Island if you can get your hands on it. You don't want to miss out on Zaku Martial Arts. (laughs) Worth it for the pure ridiculousness. We say goodbye now to all of the soldiers of First Gundam's one-year war. To all of those who went out and didn't come back. Howard Nemirov's The War in the Air. For a saving grace, we didn't see our dead, who rarely bothered coming home to die, but simply stayed away out there in the clean war, the war in the air. Seldom the ghosts came back bearing their tales of hitting the earth, the incompressible sea, but stayed up there in the relative wind, shades fading in the mind, who had no graves but only epitaphs, where never so many spoke for never so few. Per Ardua said the partisans of Mars, Per Aspera to the stars. That was the good war, the war we won, as if there was no death, for goodness sake. With the help of the losers we left out there, in the air, in the empty air.
next time on episode 2.1, The Sign of Zeta, setting the stage for the first Gundam show to contend with the fandom and the legacy. Japan and the world in the 1980s. Why this show? Why now? Developments in anime technology and the anime market, and new faces and old faces. You will see the tears of time. Make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSB Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Shar calls Garma my dear Garma in his last scene in the movie because they were such good buds. On any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. That's not wrong. It just depends on what you mean by good buds. <laughs> Friends with benefits. <laughs> the benefit is betrayal. <laughs> the tribute music is The Stars Look Different, Ziggy Stardust Mix by Spinning Merkaba. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. By then, New York will be the Venice of North America. <laughs> it's true. It's All true. the streets will be flooded over. We'll be taking boats everywhere. Nope, we even have the banks. We're well set up for it. I agree with your statement, but it's one of those things you're not supposed to say. <laughs> Gundampodcast.net. It's dot com. <laughs> It's not all that much cooler at night. That's true. We could open windows, but that makes it louder. Mm-hmm. We could... Hmm. Suffer. An, we could get an intern who fans us. <laughs> I think we would need several interns. We each need one fan <laughs> intern. What if it was like one really large fan? Like one of those big palm fronds? Or one intern to double handle <laughs> <laughs> the fans. <laughs> of jokes you <laughs> I was so excited I just had to blurt it out zombie time zombie 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 char a char oh it's a char <laughs> zombie zombie <laughs> in your side in your side oh my God. zombie were you into the cranberries yeah fakers <laughs> I have a type. Yes, you do. Everyone is just talking out of their thermal exhaust ports. Mm. Hypothetically, there could be very short range radio transmission. Did I say wange? You did say wange. <laughs> I would just like to express the song from the end credits that opens with the like very simple but 
very strong piano feels like it is absolutely a riff on Cold as Ice by Foreigner, <laughs> which came out in 77, so they absolutely could have been cribbing yep. <laughs> from it. Yep, they could have. Tom didn't remember the song, and I played it for him. He was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's very much alike. I should mention, as long as we're talking about the songs, all of the big songs from these two movies, both Soldiers of Sorrow and Encounters in Space, the lyrics were written by Tomino, under his pseudonym, of course. Cool. One more important dialogue thing that I have to say, because I have to, <laughs> I have to claim credit for this. But remember a couple of episodes back when I did that whole thing about the visual connection between Oni, the demons of Japanese folklore, and mobile suits, in particular the Zaku and the Goof? Well, in this movie, there is a scene where I think Sela says Char has become a monster. But she doesn't use the word that is usually translated as monster, bakemono. She says, Oni, Char has become an Oni. <laughs> 